Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez-Kastmeyer, and this is the Weekly Waffle. Um, So as many of you who, all two of you, who religiously listen to this show for some reason that is unknown to man or science or common sense, um, you'll you'll know that I, I wasn't able to get up an episode last week on Saturday, and there's a reason for that. The reason being that um, I pre-record all this stuff. Um, none of these shows are going out live. They're they're I record them, I post them, you know, I schedule them for the next day at a particular time, and then that's that. Um, that's how I like doing things. Um, I don't do I don't do live podcasting for one major reason. That's because when I first started this, I didn't know what I was doing and I was nervous, and so I didn't really know how to do any of that stuff, so I figured if I don't record it live, then at least I have a chance to go fix it if I think it sucks. So, uh, so I I do all this recording the day before, so Friday evening, usually, sometimes Friday morning, um, when when I have time off from my job, my day job, I do the recording for this particular episode, and, um, I didn't get to do that last Friday because I got an opportunity to go hang out with my friend Will, who I've talked about on this show a couple of times. Um, the man who became the first real supporter of this show and uh, thus far remains the, the only constant one. I don't know why he continues to support this show. I guess he just likes listening to me ramble. Uh, and the man who convinced me that um, doing the Reader's Corner as a separate episode was a better idea than doing it as a segment of this particular show, uh, you know, that's Will. And I got to go hang out with him Friday evening. It was sort of a semi-planned, semi-impromptu thing. I, I had suspected that we were going to do it on Saturday and said he wanted to do it Friday night, but we had fun. You know, I went over to his house. We caught up. I hadn't seen him since, I think, last November when we went to go see that comedy show in, um, in South City, uh, full of local stand-ups at this small little venue. It wasn't even a club, it was just a little place that they had a drinks bar, and, you know, we just went and we sat there and we listened to the acts, and they were all, most of them were fantastic. The closer was absolutely deserved that spot. And they're all local talent to St. Louis, so it was wonderful to see that with him. So now we've all been vaccinated, and, and I was able to go over to his house and not have to worry about, you know, COVID killing us. Um, and we talked two hours, and then we spent the next two hours listening to comedy albums on vinyl and uh, jazz albums. Uh, we listened to, let's see, we listened to an album by George Carlin that I had never heard before that featured, it was back in, it was clearly from his 1970s era, uh, when he was the waning days of his record career, when he, you know, after FM and AM, the, the four gold albums and so forth, Class Clown, Occupation Fool, um, 
Toledo Window Box. It was one of those albums that followed after that. And it had um, a lot of material that I'd never heard George do before, but it also had a very early version of Baseball and Football, which is one of his, probably one of his most famous bits. Um, And one of the things that Will and I noted was the fact that he reversed the way he got into things. Um, in the in the version that I think most people know about uh, from the 1990 stand-up show on HBO, Doing It Again, George goes into that bit, but he starts with football. You know, in football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Uh, that kind of thing. So starting with the extreme, crazy, serious football game, uh, and then you know going into the slightly more ridiculous-sounding uh, baseball stuff. Um, you know, you know to be on target with your with your nuclear strikes. And even if he has to use the shotgun with short bullet passes and long bombs, he launches into enemy territory and finally gets past his defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home and to be safe. I hope I'll be safe at home. (laughs) But in this case, you know, clearly George had just written this bit and he was performing it for the first time, which is also proof that stand-up comics don't actually have to They don't have to retire bits. They can refine them. They can redo them. They can figure out how to, you know, and I think that was the writer side of George's personality. Uh, When he went back to a bit and he would try to rework it and rewrite it and try to figure out a better way to perform it and build on it to make it better and better and better and better. And I think in this case, he definitely uh, did the smart thing and took the time to refine it. Um... So we listened to that. We listened to Giant Steps by Coltrane. Because I had never heard Giant Steps. I had never heard the whole thing of Giant Steps. But I knew it was infamous because, particularly for the solo sequences, I feel so sorry for that poor piano player. Apparently the story behind John Coltrane's Giant Steps is that he came up with this... came up with this tune. And of course the whole object in jazz is that you come up with a basic tune you know, a four, 12-bar blues, whatever it is, and you bring it in, and then you improv off it using the different keys that each section of the song enables you to do. Um, so he brought it into the recording studio with the jam band that he was working with that day, and they looked at this thing, and of course... Uh, any musician or any jazz fan knows that uh, that <laughs> Coltrane's... Uh, giant steps is called that for a reason because you're shifting keys virtually every single uh, every single yeah, every single fr- not not quite every single phrase but you're shifting keys so rapidly um, you're never in the same key for more than a few bars uh, and they're drastically different keys there's almost no direct jump that you can make from them or at least no direct jump that uh a lot of those those poor mu- musicians i don't know how how much um music theory those guys had had when they uh when they listened to those things or when they saw when, when they went into music um not sure how classically trained they were coltrane of course had a pretty good classical grounding uh to begin with but so you get to the you get to the solo section where it's very clear that everybody in the group is taking their turn soloing. And you get to the pianist. And 
he's not failing to improv. He's, but he's clearly struggling. He's very, very clearly struggling. He's coming up with a phrase here and then pausing and then coming up with a phrase there and then pausing. And that's because he's having to make these ludicrous changes in, seemingly ludicrous changes in, uh, in key, moving from one key to another. And he, he's having trouble. He's having, and, and, you know, can you blame him? Because he's just been given this music by John Coltrane, one of the greatest uh, jazz saxophonists there is out there. Uh, he's had no time to look over the music and to figure it out, and maybe to get an idea of where he might go. But of course, that's the thing about jazz, is that it's supposed to be, the art is in the, is in the improv, in the spontaneity, in the performance. It's not in the pre-planning. It's not in the, what's on the page. What's on the page is a springboard into the true art. And so you, you hear, is right at the end of the album, you hear the jazz pianist, whose name I, I can't remember, that's my fault, um, whose name I can't remember, and you're hearing him struggle, and he's, he, you know, God bless him, he's holding his own, um, but he's, he's clearly not working to his strengths. And then Coltrane cuts in, and he takes off like a fucking rocket. And it's incredible how but then again you know to be fair Coltrane had been working with this and he'd figured out how to connect each of those keys each of those major key shifts um he'd figured it out he'd been thinking about it and that's when he was able to pull off that amazing because when people think about giant steps they're thinking about their track and they're specifically thinking about how Coltrane was able to just blow it out of the park you know, he is the center of attention on that album, which on the one hand is understandable because when you're a soloist, it's your time to shine, but at the same time, is a little bit rude to the people who's, who, who are working with you and accompanying you. And then we listened to a Coltrane Miles Davis album, which was phenomenal as well. Um, Will's got this fantastic, uh, just several shelves full of vinyl albums um that he's been getting into more and more and he you know gotten some from his siblings but he's just been getting into it a lot more and he's got plenty of comedy albums so we'll be doing that regularly i actually pitched the idea to him before i went over to his house that we should do a podcast together because we're both reasonably knowledgeable i'm not saying we're experts because after all we're just fans um we, we have no formal educational training in any of this, but I, I suggested that what we should do is we should do a podcast where all we do is talk about our favorite um, comedians, you know, stand-up comics, obviously, because those are the people we love the most, I think, and then our favorite movie comedies, our favorite comedy actors, you know, from people from the silent days all the way to the present day, and everybody in between, and we... we you know, we'd love to do that. It'd just be the two of us bullshitting for about an hour. One of these days we'll do it, um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Maybe we'll do it on this podcast, I don't know, uh, because I've been doing just the... It's just been me bullshitting the entire time <laughs> through this, so maybe we'll do it here. Maybe we'll do it elsewhere, I'm not sure. But it's somewhere in the cards at some point. Um, in the meantime, you know, besides that, you know, so that's the real reason why there hasn't been a new episode, why there wasn't a new episode on, on Saturdays, because all my time got taken up spending time with my friend, but quite honestly, I'd rather spend time with, you know, after the 
year and a half of being, of having to experience pandemic fuck-uppery, I'm perfectly happy to go spend more time with my friends and appreciate them and be in their company than to do this, because the whole point of doing this was to entertain them because we couldn't spend any time together, you know, so excuse the other person who listens to this on a regular basis (laughs) although apparently the audience is still growing on this show and i cannot believe it because a couple of weeks ago i looked at the analytics for this show and i said i think right at the beginning of the season that i was apparently being listened to in like 40 countries um and now i'm being listened to in 41 because recently some poor schmuck in nigeria started listening to me um i i'm sorry that you have nothing better to do person in nigeria who's listening to me but i appreciate it (laughs) i appreciate it um but I did, I, I, you know, I had full intention of actually recording something for that show, and I did record something, you'll hear it later, um, and we'll, we'll get to that later, but, you know, I, I've just, in the meantime, I've just, because there are a few things that I actually managed to, you know, 23 odd minutes of material that I managed to record for, for the supposed Saturday show last week that I didn't actually end up using, because, you know, where's the rest of it, you know? <laughs> Uh, so we're we're gonna do we're gonna do some of that. But in the meantime, you know, I've been back in town now for two weeks after having done my two weeks out west and enjoying every moment of it, except the moments where I got you know cramped uh, in that fucking car. Because it turns out that when when you don't have the ability to move your legs for a long time and you're stuck in one position, that causes you to experience this awful thing called sciatic nerve pain, and it sucks. I strongly suggest you avoid ever experiencing it because, trust me, it is unpleasant. I'm sure getting kicked in the gonads would be worse, but this was pretty bad. Anyway, um, when I get back in time, <laughs> you know, while we were out there, while we were out in California, uh, we saw signs up everywhere, especially when we got to San Francisco. We went to an In-N-Out Burger in San Francisco because we knew, you know, because we're we're touristy people, so we we wanted to go check out this this famous fast food chain that's out there uh, that really is its kind of its own powerhouse, um, which is this In-N-Out Burger place, and we went out there when we were in San Francisco, and we saw Help Wanted signs in the windows there, and it said that they were paying, willing to pay 18 and I think $20 an hour to new employees and um, managers, which sounds like a lot of money until you remember that it's California, and that is starvation wage right there. <laughs> you know, but apparently it was a lot higher than it than, than they were offering before because out in California their minimum wage their state minimum wage is a lot higher than it is here, but it's not enough to live on in California. And I just thought to myself, you know, if they would offer that here in Missouri or, you know, all over the country, people would be so happy. But it's not the case. And then a few days ago, I saw this, uh, you know, the reason I bring that up is because a few days ago, I saw this uh, news item from CNBC, which is the consumer arm and finance arm of NBC in general. 
of MSNBC, you know, they specialize in talking about finances and so forth, and it was an article, it was very clearly designed to be semi-clickbaity, and so the article read, um, the headline was, no one working minimum wage anywhere in the country can afford, no, full-time minimum wage workers can no longer afford to live anywhere in the country. And my first reaction when I saw this headline was was not anger, was not, you know, I, I didn't feel the muscles in my neck tense, and I didn't feel the blood start flowing into my face, and my ears start burning as I, you know, go into that semi-Tasmanian devil internalized rage. Um, it was not that, it wasn't even, it was just plain old exasperation and then very quietly I said to myself no fucking shit why do you think people were pissed off when Kristen Cinema gave the Julius Caesar thumbs down to the raising the minimum wage and adding that as part of the American Rescue Plan? Why do you think people got pissed off at Biden and Harris when they said they weren't going to argue with the um uh, I can't even remember the fucker's name, you know, their title, but you know they they weren't going to argue that this couldn't be part of the of the reconciliation bill. You know, why do you think people are still bitching about this? It's because this has happened. It's because nobody can no longer afford to live anywhere in the country working a minimum wage job. And of course, the conservative people will say, a minimum wage job is not supposed to be a job that you have for the rest of your life. Um, it's supposed to be a, jo- a place where you gain job experience and a place where you're supposed to afford, you know, you're supposed to make a little bit of money so that way you can go to a trade school or to a college or to a community college or private university or wherever the fuck and get education so that way you can get the fuck out of there. Which maybe used to be the case. That's how things used to be. Back when you could afford minimum wage, back when money was actually worth something. Um... And you could afford, you know, you could afford, you know, if you got a scholarship and you went to a college, you could afford to pay part of your bill with the money you got from that minimum wage job. But the problem is, is that the value of the dollar has gone down. And no, rather, the value of the dollar has has stagnated. Well, the expenses of making things and of, 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 of a lot of different things, you know, cost of living has gone up. And the value of the dollar and therefore the amount of the number of dollars that you're supposed to be paid has not increased. And we have to lay this at the feet. Unfortunately, we have to lay this at the feet of Bush and Obama, who, at least in this country, are most responsible for the shithole economy that we have, that we've had for, you know, over, you know, well over a decade now. We have to blame Bush because even though under Bush's tenure, the minimum wage actually went up, you know, it increased pretty much every year. He got us into the war in Iraq and he increased the war in Afghanistan, the force that we were committing there. Wars are fucking expensive. This is a fact. You need to have money and resources in order to be able to wage a war. And so as a result, 
you know, that whole thing, that whole thing that was going on, that was a major deficit that we were taking on. And we were borrowing money, which caused the, the money that we already had to devalue. And it's, un, you know, it, it's, it's so, it's such a complicated hot mess. But, but when, you, when, you, when you dig yourself a freaking hole and you're borrowing money and you're spending all the money that you have, guess what happens? Your economy goes into the shitter. That's what happens. And at the same time, you know, the economy here was still suffering from that housing bubble that eventually burst in 2008. Which caused everything to go haywire, and you know Bush. You know, there's a documentary I think that was done uh, by PBS on the Frontline program. You can find it on YouTube. I think it was Frontline. Um, that talks about actually a lot of the programs. Apparently, the federal government was aware that the housing bubble was a problem, and so they put into place a lot of the programs that um, were eventually executed by Obama. You know the tarp and so forth everything that he did to bail the country out of uh, of going into a second depression but it burst technically on bush's watch and it happened and you know it just went nowhere um and then finally it under obama everybody was so paranoid that we were going to have another economic downturn that under obama the minimum wage only increased once to where it stands, 7.25 an hour, and it has not gone up since. It has not gone up since. Now you may think, well, that's not really a big deal. Well, it is a big deal when your country is so paranoid about spending money, at least regarding to how it treats its own citizens, that it won't. It doesn't raise the minimum wage. And to be fair, it's not completely Obama's fault. It's also you know, that motherfucker Mitch McConnell's fault as well, because he made passing any kind of legislation next to impossible by being so obdurate, by being such a power-hungry douche nozzle that, <laughs> in a suit, you know, with <laughs> that things just got worse. Things just got worse for the average person in this country, and it's sad that it got worse, but it did happen. And now we're in the mess we're in now. And people are not able to afford living anywhere on a minimum wage job. The fact of the matter is, is that we need to fix that. We need to fix our own mentality when it comes to the minimum wage. Because the other thing you have to remember, you know, to bring this up again, and I'm sure I'm repeating some of the stuff that I said before, but the fact of the matter is, is that even though some of the states were smart enough to keep increasing their state minimum wages, which of course su- uh, superseded the federal minimum wage if it was less, uh, or if it was more rather, um, a lot of the states don't have federal minimum wages. So a lot of states have been at 7.25 an hour. Uh, you know, Alabama is one of them. 7.25 an hour all this time, without an increase. The people who've been there working, I'm sure, have gotten raises, uh, unless their employers are total douche nozzles, but it's, it's unfortunate that we're still in this situation, and then, of course, I come back from the West to change gears again, come back from the West, and I find, find out that Missouri has become a major COVID hotspot, 
I think it was on like a list of top seven, top five worst places to be in terms of the Delta variant. And a few days ago, there was this news flash that there were three counties in southern Missouri that are just, you know, you want to stay away from them as much as possible. Chicago, the fucking state of Chicago, the city of Chicago has literally caused crafted an advisory warning to anybody who you know anybody who apparently comes to missouri now is expected to be wary that we are dangerous which is horrible and that's the fault of our you know that's the fault of the fuckwits who we have in charge here i mean really most of them are from southern missouri southern missouri is the reason missouri has such a bad reputation everywhere else in the country just you know everybody shits on us and everybody this is one of the reasons why anything horrible happens in the state of missouri the people who live in columbia kansas city and st louis all say hey that's that's those motherfuckers it's not us it's not us we have common sense you know we're, we we don't want to be accused of this shit uh and of course Parsons, that royal pinhead who just clusterfucked everything when it came. And now we actually have COVID vaccines in Schnooks, and we've got them in CVS pharmacies. We've got them. I mean, they're all over the place. You can easily access them here, and they're the safe ones. You know, the Pfizer and the Moderna. They're two shots. That's annoying, but hey, you know, you're not going to get a massive blood clot, uh, and you're less likely to get. Um, seriously sick if you happen to catch a kind of, you know the delta variant but you know that's the mess that i came back to <laughs> that's the mess i came back to that's the state i live in this is you know and i'm trying i'm trying not to shit on my state but it is very very hard at some point to not do that but anyway, um, I am going to share with you the material that I managed to save for, uh, that I managed to record for what was supposed to be last week's show, because there are a few things, and you're going to hear that very, very shortly. I'll do another little brief intro uh, to that. So if you hear me say, hello, funny people, welcome, you know, my whole shtick when I introduce this show, like I do now, um, it's not me having had a stroke and forgetting where I am in the course of the show. It's that recording. So that's what's coming up next. And in the meantime, I do hope that you'll enjoy the rest of the show that follows. Um, and you'll get to hear, you know, so you're getting two intros for the price of one. You're getting this one for this week's show, and then you're getting, getting the one for what was supposed to be last week's show. So there you go. Um, we're going to have some fun, so stick with me.
So, for those of you who uh, heard and listened to that, uh, that I guess you could say second introduction to this show, uh, the inclusion of which is one of the reasons why I don't have any of my normal shtick on here uh, on this particular episode, but it, one of the things that I don't know if I mentioned when I was talking about that is, uh, is what else we did when we were on this road trip. Um, I'm, I firmly believe that in order to survive a road trip, you need to find some way of entertaining everybody between attractions. You know, if you're going from one city to another like we did, you need to find a way to keep people from murdering each other. And uh, the way I did, aside from, you know, working on my writing, which of course is, is always there, um, I had my little lap desk kind of thing that I put over my knees to kind of keep my uh, computer from burning up too much. Um, and it's worked marvels, because now I can literally write anywhere now that I've got the equipment. Um, the, the other thing I did uh, was read. And I read uh, comic books. I was reading, you know, I... I was never a big comic book fan when I was growing up, mainly because my parents, my father didn't grow up reading comics at all. You know, he was from Honduras. I don't think they got them down there. Um, and if they did, they probably just destroyed the paper and used that for something else uh, to wrap meat or, you know, to wipe their asses if they couldn't afford toilet paper. I'm not joking, by the way. That does sometimes happen. Uh, and my mother grew up, you know, was a child of the 50s and 60s. Now she, let's see, she, she would have been, yeah, the 50s and 60s were not a good time for comics. And so as a result, I think she grew up with this idea that uh, a lot of teachers ended up reinforcing later, later on down the line, which is that comic books were not suitable, worthwhile reading material, which I find hilarious because, you know, people read bullshit like the National Enquirer, and they read shit like People Magazine, garbage, you know, if you want to talk about garbage literature, it's that crap, um, but comic books, uh, we, so we didn't have them, and also because my brother and I grew up both with our own kind of set of reading difficulties, you know, that's code for dyslexia, by the way, um, because we, we each grew up with that. The idea that you had pictures that would help you understand what was going on was bad. You just you could only experience the words and you had to learn how to comprehend them from there, which is crap. So as a result, I did not grow up with comics at all. I really didn't. Um, I knew all the superheroes and the main reason I knew all the superheroes was because of cartoons. You know... Uh, I learned about the X-Men, partly because in the year, I think it was 2000, the X-Men movie came out, and uh, I think around that same time, X-Men Evolution, a sort of YA cartoon version of the X-Men, where they're all in high school, uh, you know, started showing up on our Saturday morning cartoon radar, and we enjoyed that. Uh, my brother really enjoyed it, um, which makes sense because of what the X-Men really represent, and I enjoyed it too, but probably not on the same level he did, um, and of course, you know, we, we had Batman, we had Superman, we had eventually Static Shock, who's an underrated superhero, and really needs to, needs to be brought back somehow, because that was a good show, 
it's an interesting set of characters, an interesting situation for the DC Universe. And we had new, you know, we had the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited and Batman Beyond. You know, all that stuff was part, which is also one of the reasons why, um, why I still to this day think that Mark Hamill, who I didn't even realize was Luke Skywalker until I was in my late teens, uh, is the only true Joker. <laughs> So I didn't, I didn't grow up reading. So I'm sort of trying to find um, things that I can experience now. And one of the things I wanted to try and experience, because he just passed away last year, was uh, the work of Denny O'Neill. I don't know how many of you know about Denny O'Neill, but uh, Denny was a great comic book writer. He was a writer, period. But he, he, his biggest contribution to literature of any kind was in comics. Uh, he was the person who really revitalized Green Lantern and Green Arrow uh, for DC. Um, he wrote run on. He had a run on Superman because everybody has a run on on Superman eventually. Uh, and he, but for his biggest contribution, arguably, was as the editor and writer of Batman. I mean, he was the one who oversaw Frank Miller's uh, writing of the uh, Dark Knight Returns, which is still to this day considered to be one of the greatest graphic novels ever produced. Um, he expanded. He moved Batman away from the Adam West uh, '70s camp and moved it back to the slightly more gritty era. Of Batman, where it feels more like a noirish detective story, um, with maybe a supernatural element here and there. Uh, and he added stuff. I mean, he was one of the co-creators of Ra's al Ghul or Ra's al Ghul, how, however you, most people pronounce it. Talia, the Lazarus Pit, huge contribution. He reinvented Two Face and the Joker, making them menacing again. Uh, whereas again, removing the sort of camp element that uh, infected them for many, many years. And, but and and he just he became the king of Batman. He knew exactly how to write for Batman. Well, it turned out when he was doing that job, he also happened to, uh, you know, when he when he finally got that job, when he was still doing that job, his bosses at DC asked him because it'd been a while since he'd written like six months into this gig been a while since he'd written and so they gave him an offer that he could write one of two characters and the two characters were Captain Adam and the question well uh, these for those of you who don't recognize either of those names let me explain something okay so Captain Adam and the question were not originally this is the nerd in me coming out Captain Adam and the Question were not characters who originated in the DC universe. They were actually created by a different comics company altogether called Charlton Comics. And the Question and, and Captain Adam was essentially Charlton's version of Superman. He was their demigod superhero character, ultimate good guy. The Question, in many ways, was Charlton's answer to Batman. <laughs> pun intended. Uh, he was uh, a down-to-earth, grounded individual who really had, who had no superpowers, but had an incredibly sharp mind, a voracious curiosity, and a certain facility for martial arts, so he could defend himself. And it just so happens that the question was created by Steve Ditko, probably more famous for co-creating Spider-Man 
with Stan Lee than uh, this character. Well, eventually Charlton Comics went defunct. And Denny, you know, was very nervous about writing for Captain Adam. He actually felt like he, you know, I mentioned that he did a run on Superman. Well, he felt like it was one of the poorest jobs he ever did because he found it very difficult to plot for demigods. Because, you know, what do you, how are you supposed to make something dangerous for somebody who can destroy whole worlds if they so chose, or somebody who could who could take over the world single-handedly because they have so much power. How are you supposed to plot for somebody like that? Denny's mind and world was worked more on the ground level, which is why he was so good at writing for Batman. So he decided, well, the question that's more human, human scale, more down-to-earth, I can do that. So he went with the question. Only one problem. Steve Ditko, and I did not know this, um, although I knew who Steve Ditko was. Steve Ditko was an objective, uh, objectivist. Objectivist. Now, for those of you who don't know what objectivism is, crash course. Objectivism is a social philosophy of the right-wing conservative fashion that um, dictates and believes and, and puts forth as its main thesis that the liberty of the individual and what they want, what they desire, that is the single most important thing in society. The liberty of the individual. And it's still actually the heart of a lot of uh, conservative thought to this very day. Originally proposed by Ayn Rand who wrote about it incessantly in her books, including The Fountainhead and more overtly in Atlas Shrugged. Well, Denny, even though he respected Steve's creative acumen, respected him as an artist, respected him as a storyteller, they were on two completely different planets as far as politics. Denny was a you know, a rebellious, hippie, hitchhiking Navy veteran, as I think he once described himself, and um, he, he could not write Ditko's version of the question. So he accepted the gig, provided with one big caveat that he could significantly change the character. And he did. That's exactly what he did. Over the course of three years, 36 issues, one issue a month, he changed... Uh, Ditko's objectivist question into a uh, almost like a Zen Buddhist somebody who's constantly seeking after the meaning of life, the reason to live um, all these you know, very existential made it very existential and it works because it's compelling It's on the one hand, Denny being so good at a storyteller as he was always had external conflict, because that's what a lot of comic book writing is, having the external conflict, and the question was constantly bumping up against that, but at the same time, he also had this internal journey, which was not necessarily new by that point in comics, it certainly wasn't revolutionary, I mean, if you look at some of Neil Gaiman's work, you can see you can see it going on there, you can see it going on to a certain extent in some of Alan Moore's work, uh, but it was something very, very unusual for an actual honest-to-God superhero comic. 
but he helped to redefine the character, and he did that over the course of 36 issues. Uh, and so I, you know, all the way through uh, doing, um, you know, between sites when we were on this road trip, I went ahead and started reading that. And I'm about three quarters of the way through the first year, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. But I also, you know, in addition to that, I also listen to a lot of audiobooks. I listened to two whole novels <laughs> while we were on the road because it was the only thing to keep me distracted. And while I'm at it, let me put my two cents in on this. Because it seems like this, this argument comes up again and again and again all the fucking time within the Twitter circles that I move in. Which is the, the, the great debate as to whether or not audiobooks are an actual form of reading. And they are. I just want to put that out there. They are. They are a form of reading. In order to be able to read, in order to be able to understand what little scrawls on a piece of paper mean, you have to know what they sound like. People who... When they read, we've actually, there have been studies done on this. People, when they read visually, meaning that they're looking at the words on the page, and people who listen to audiobooks, if you were to scan their brain, do an MRI on their brain, the same areas light up. The exact same areas that have to do with auditory. Because, of course, language first begins spoken and then written spoken language predated written language and so really what i want to do with this uh, little bit here is i wanted to put down make my declaration and it fits in perfectly since i'm talking about so much about the um, so much about the road trip um this is my simple declaration of why i love audiobooks and i hope you'll enjoy it even if you don't like audiobooks even if you don't like listening to them I hope that um, you'll accept my two cents for what it is. So here it is. I'd love some statistician to verify whether this is true, but I'm certain that 90 to 95 percent of all plots to murder members of one's family begin in family vehicles on road trips. Consider a moment, dear listener, my reasoning for believing this. You're in a confined space, a car, a van, or what have you, thus eliminating any chance of privacy. You're in a sedentary position, literally strapped in for safety's sake, unable to move, thus eliminating any means of removing yourself from a potentially hostile situation. You're there for X amount of time, usually a lengthy period of time, until you reach your destination. Finally, you're in this cramped space, crunched up, for an extended period of time with people who know better than anyone else on the planet how to push your buttons because, as I believe Elizabeth Gilbert once said, they're the ones who installed them. Anyone who knows a little bit about chemistry knows that when you mix two or more volatile agents in a confined space, say a beaker or a bottle, the end result is usually an explosion. 
This was certainly the case for my family when we still regularly did these things many years ago. Please, dear listener, take a trip back in time with me. This was an era before Wi-Fi, before unlimited data, before smartphones, and just before when cars with built-in TV screens came into existence, and those that did cost assloads of money. To listen to music, we have these things called Walkmans, with non-noise-canceling headphones that wrap around your head. We couldn't stream movies or TV shows. We had to play them on clunky, portable DVD players or on jerry-rigged setups in our vehicles. Ours was a little portable TV about the size of a boxy PC monitor, which had a built-in VCR. And for power, for power, we plugged its cable into a converter box, which we then had to plug into a little old cigarette lighter port on the dashboard just below the radio. It wasn't a simpler time. It was a time when boredom was an actual possibility. And to stave it off, you had to get creative. Now, you could use one of the primitive methods that I mentioned just before. You could annoy the other passengers in your road trip carpool, thus adding to the statistics of devising murder plots I also mentioned earlier. Or, as a means of free entertainment, you could go to the library before you left on your road trip, as my parents did, and have us browse through the audiobook section of the library and take out everything we could and listen to it on the road. I'm fairly certain audiobooks, or as we call them in the olden times, books on tape, are the only reason my siblings and I are still alive. On every road trip, even the ones we went on after learning to jerry-rig the TV set, we always made a customary stop by the library the day we left. We took a lot of these road trips when we were little kids, while my family was always comfortable, we never had obnoxious amounts of disposable income to spend on vacations. We didn't take cruises. We didn't go to resorts. We didn't take trips by airplane unless we had absolutely no choice. We drove everywhere, and when it got too dark, we lodged in nearby cheap hotels. It was slower, yes, and it wasn't classy by any standards, but it was cheaper and in its own way fun. Usually, we spent our vacations going to national parks. The year, for example, when we went to Yellowstone National Park, we picked up several audiobooks, a few old favorites and some new ones. That was the year Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix had finally made it on audiobook. We took it along with several old favorites like Prince Brett and the Whipping Boy, The Skull of Truth, and The Lord of the Rings, the complete omnibus edition out as well. As we drove across the northwestern United States to kill time between natural national monuments like Old Faithful and the Hot Springs, we listened to these books. To our parents' relief, it kept us from murdering one another and from driving them totally batshit. Although we did drive them batshit enough to turn their hair gray. It was also that year that we learned to stop taking out books that were actually on tape. Something rude people tended to do with the books on tape, either because they were too poor to buy their own copy or just felt the need to ruin nice things for everyone because they were such shit people, was copy the tapes. This process, however, invariably ruined the original, leaving what remained of the original recording a scrambled screech of death. 
you'd put the tape in without worry and then suddenly your sound system turned into a screaming banshee intent on rupturing your eardrums. We found this out the year when the tape copy of Order of the Phoenix did this to us. From then on, we stuck to CDs. We did that before every road trip, and with many different titles. Over several years and several road trips, we listened to nearly the whole series of a series of unfortunate events novels by Lemony Snicket. I say nearly because Scholastic was still publishing the books as we grew up. We also listened to several novels by German writer Cornelia Funk, including Dragon Rider, Inkheart, and The Thief Lord. Another favorite was Lois Lowry's then-Giver Trio, The Giver, Gathering Blue, and Messenger. Strange, haunting stories loaded with imagery uncommon in children's and YA books then, along with the first two books of Christopher Paolini's Inheritance Cycle and the Septimus Heat books by Angie Sage. And, of course, as they came out, we listened to the last four Harry Potter books. Between seeing sights like the Grand Canyon, the Petrified Forest, the Badlands, and Mount Rushmore, we simply devoured these books one CD at a time. On an even more personal note, as someone who grew up with reading difficulties, that's a euphemism for dyslexia, by the way, audiobooks were indispensable. Sometimes when the words would start to scramble on the page, having an audiobook where a good narrator spoke all the words and thus clarified them made all the difference in my comprehension. We had to do a lot of book report projects on books we read in middle school, and sometimes the books we had to read seemed so voluminous. Without the audiobook, I don't know if I would have read them. Without audiobooks, I have a hard time believing that I would have made it through school. I think the appeal of the audiobook is not just the simple appeal of being read to, it's a more basic appeal of having someone tell you a story. Many parents still to this day read to and uh, with their kids at night. Humans, as many people have said, are story animals. We're the only species on Earth, so far as we know, that tell stories. We tell true stories, history, experience, humorous anecdote, and we tell fictional stories. Everything from moral parables to grand fantastical epics like Homer's The Odyssey. Before the popularized practice of writing and by proxy popular literacy, we told each other stories. That experience of having a story slowly recounted to you is what audiobooks recreate. Now, thanks in large part to Audible, I'm able to listen to almost anything, and I listen regularly. It isn't just because they help me overcome my difficulties as a student. It isn't just because of nostalgia for one of the highlights of my childhood. It isn't just because the stories I listen to keep me from plotting my older sibling's murders. I worked those out when I was eight, by the way, but I haven't needed to implement them yet. There is something simply soothing about listening to a story as its words flow over you. Nothing else compares to it. Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, 
And bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, Folks, birthin' is hard, and dyin' is mean, so get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time.